uh, my mind is all over the road today. It is like a just, I'm, as, I'm, as Brandon's talking, I'm actually thinking about things that have nothing to do with what I'm supposed to be thinking about, him and teaching. And I'm, I just had a, a, a kind of a revelation that I've got a friend of mine have got, who's homeless, and I have all of his clothes in the back closet, and I've got to figure out how to get those to him. And so I was thinking through those things, going, wait, 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 wait a minute. And I need to regroup and focus on what we're doing here, because we've got a lot of things in the air right now. So I'm going to try and get through a substantial part of our text today. We're going to split it in two. We're going to cover the last part of Acts chapter 17 today, and we're going to finish it next week. And so I'm going to try and move through some things to get us to a place next week where we can really see some incredible things that are unfolding. So those of you here for the first time, we are now week 40, I don't know, three, I think, into the book of Acts. We are going verse by verse by verse through this incredible what I like to call a, a sort of a call of the church, a call of the Christ follower. It's, it's not so much a picture into the history of the church as much as it is a call for you and I and for the first century church to go out and be the gospel in the world. And so we've been exploring it, and we have seen some of the most incredible sort of relationships and miracles. We've also seen some of the most uh, uh, deeply disturbing and, and difficult situations imaginable. We've watched people that have been, have been killed, and we've watched people that have been in prison, and gospel uh, people that have had their lives sort of torn apart. We've watched God's grace rise through it all, and we've seen this sort of deep kind of movement of what it means to be the church. If there's anything that should shape who we are, this is the call that shapes us, right? It's going into the world with the gospel. And we are right now in the middle of the second missionary journey. So we explored the first one. Paul and Barnabas took off about 1,200 miles in about two years. And they came back from this incredible kind of first lap of the gospel around the known world. And they tell all the amazing stories. You remember that? And then a little bit of a falling out. And, and Barnabas and, and John Mark went uh, a different direction. And Paul and Silas began the second missionary journey. And, and along the way, they picked up a 15-year-old kid named Timothy, and they walked through some really difficult times, 350 miles in the desert, waiting for God to do something, but the Spirit kept closing the doors, and they find themselves on the, on the coast in this little town, and God shows up in a vision of Paul and says, I want you to go take the gospel to Macedonia, and so they get on a boat, and they, they sail over, and they walk to this town called Philippi, and we're introduced to, to Lydia, who they met by the banks of the river, and the Philippian church was born out of her household and how God had opened her heart. And, and the Philippian people, we saw them kind of kind of reject the gospel as it came in. And, and Paul and Silas, you know, got themselves in a little bit of trouble and they were thrown in jail. And the, 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 the earthquake happened and the foundation of the jail shook. And we went through all those stories two weeks ago. And God, through a miraculous move of his spirit, right, saved the jailer, opened the jailer's heart to the gospel. And, and Paul and, and Silas didn't take off. And, and the whole town was sort of stirred. And, and they asked Paul and Silas to leave two weeks ago. So Paul and Silas, they leave and they head for two other Macedonian cities, Thessalonica and Berea. And what we learned a couple weeks ago is as they made their way into these cities, we begin to see some really familiar settings happening, some things happening. And, and what typically happens is Paul, they show up into a city with he and his companions and they make their way to wherever the Jewish people and Jewish leaders gather. And they preach the gospel there and some people are moved and, and God opens their heart and they receive the gospel and some people aren't, usually Jewish leaders, and they get angry and they sort of incite the crowds and they either arrest or seize or try and kill Paul and his companions and they run them out of town. 
And it's a relatively common scene. And we see it happen three cities in a row, essentially. And we saw it all through the first missionary journey as well. But that happens in Thessalonica. They arrive in Thessalonica, and the Jewish leaders there are really jealous. And they're livid that the gospel is beginning to take root in people's lives. So they stir up this really angry mob. And they go looking for Paul and Silas, but they can't find him. Instead, they find this guy named Jason. And he's been spending the night at their house. And they ransack his house. And they finally get a hold of Paul and Silas, and, and Jason does, and he escorts them out of town. And they, they go down the road about 100 miles to the town of Berea, and they get there. And they go to the temple again, and the people begin to get receptive. But the Jewish leaders back in Thessalonica say, wait a minute, they're down there preaching the same message? So they walk 100 miles all the way to Berea, and they stir up the crowds again. And the crowds get kind of furious, and so the believers there, they get Paul, and they take him to the coast. And they put him on a boat, probably. He could have walked it, but it, most people believe it's a boat. And he sails for the city of Athens. And Paul, or, and Silas and Timothy stay there in Berea until things calm down. And then Paul says, I want, and we learned last week, I want you to come to me as soon as you can. What we're picking up this week is Paul has left Berea. He's set sail, essentially, for Athens. And he is there by himself, waiting on his companions to come back from Berea, being run out of these cities. And he's going to have a really incredible interaction with a... A group of people, a group of leaders that have sort of created a culture that they are the religious sort of custodians, if you will, of of all the various religions and groups that have popped themselves up in Athens. And Athens had a lot, and I'll tell you a bit more about that in a minute. All that history to say that the Holy Spirit is moving, and as it's moving, people are rising in opposition to it. Some are being moved by the Spirit, and some are being kind of stirred to opposition. And Paul and his companions are being pushed out of these little towns. And Paul has now found himself in the Greek city of Athens, uh, several hundred miles away from his companions, hoping that Timothy and that Silas make their way down there. And he is basically wandering around the city. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open to Acts chapter 17. And we are going to build on the foundation we laid last week. And the foundation we laid last week, for those of you who are here, was one of evangelism. And we talked about evangelism um, really from a, a much bigger perspective. Evangelism in terms of the perspective of love. So I love Jesus. As a follower of Christ, I love Jesus. And if I love Jesus, as we talked about last week, I do what he commands me to do, right? That he himself says that if you love me, you will do what I command. So that I love Jesus because he first loved me. But I love him and I do what he commands. And he commands me to go and tell the world about the coming kingdom of God, right? Whether we look at the Great Commission or any number of other places that we are called to go to the world. That we are called to take the gospel outside of our doors to the world. That I love Jesus that way and I do what he commands. And I love people. And because God loves people, as a follower of Christ, I'm compelled to love the things that God loves. And I love people, and I want them to know the saving grace of Jesus that has delivered me from sin and death. So evangelism really is about the perspective of love. It's not a duty, right? It's not something we have to do, and most of us think it's kind of a, a dirty word or some kind of like Christian word that we don't really like, and it's designed for pastors and other people. But that every single one of us is an evangelist because we've been loved by God and are called into it because we love him and evangelism at its core is really about sharing gospel truth not just being nice to people but at some point in time being compelled enough and loving them enough to share about the god that has transformed our lives and we looked at these encounters in thessalonica and berea and we looked at how paul interacted with people and we explored the ideal of evangelism and said why do we exist as a church if we don't exist to take the gospel into the world right 
Well, the next two weeks, we're going to use that framework of evangelism as we look at Paul's interaction with the Greeks in Athens. And it's going to, it'll make a little bit more sense uh, as we kind of move forward. But I want you to hang on to that, that idea. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, 17, chapter 17, verse 16. And we're going to go through 23 today. And then we're going to finish the rest of this um, next week. So let's take a moment. Let's pray before we open it up together. Lord, I know that was just a lot of information and a lot of talking, but the truth is that history matters, context matters. So often in scripture, we just glance at passages without a real understanding of the depth of where they're coming from and how things play out, and, and, and understanding scripture in its context is so important, Lord. And so I pray that, that as we look at our passage today, Paul's interaction with um, the Areopagus in, in Athens, Lord, what we'll see is... That this movement that you've begun, that years before you began a movement in these men that has led them across the world to share the gospel um, with this one people group over here, and that you are at work, and, and we can trust that you're at work, and, and God, these aren't isolated incidents, but they're, they're, they're movements of your grace, and what we see in these missionary journeys are movements of your grace. Lord, as, as Christians, so often we have such a short memory. Where we forget the ways that you've led us and the things that you've done for us. That when, and when trouble arises, we panic and we think you're not there. But if we look back at our lives, all the ways that you have provided and protected and laid your hand on us and guided us and led us, Lord, if we could just have a, a memory that would recall those things. So looking at scripture in these terms is really important because it reminds us of your faithfulness all along the way. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you this morning. Whatever that means, whatever you need to hear, whatever he needs to, to, to do in your heart, just ask God to teach you. I want you to pray for someone around you or behind you, even if you don't know who they are or don't remember their name or just met them today. Just, just pray for them. I just desperately want to be a church that is constantly praying for other people. This thing we do on Sunday is not just about you and about your entertainment, but it's about the Word of God moving in our hearts together. And so pray for someone beside you that God would move in them. Lord, we love you and we pray that you would teach us through your word. Amen. You know, each week we, we do that, and I kind of every once in a while I'll pause and tell you why, but I mean, each week I have you pray for each other because we are driven by a church culture that is consumeristic in its nature, like give me, give me, give me. I come and I consume, and if I don't like what you're offering, I go somewhere else, and we walk into churches and we just say, entertain me or feed me or whatever it is, and and a lot of times, if you've been through any of our, our new member class, if you're a part of our covenant community, you know that I talk a lot about Sunday mornings not just being about you, but being available to be used by God to love or speak truth in the life of somebody else. And several years ago, I mean, this was probably three years ago, I had a, a young woman, um, well, I mean, young woman, she'd been married about 15 years, so, you know, she was not newly married, but she was still a, a young woman, and and she came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, I've been coming here for several months now, and every time that we stop and we pray for the person next to you, I'm always sitting next to my husband, because we come to church together. And I said, that's great. I'm glad you all sit together. That'd be kind of odd if you didn't, but I mean, to each their own, you know, um, whatever works. But she said, here's what she said. She said, I just want you to know that I, I'm convicted, because 
When you ask us to pray uh, together on Sundays for the person sitting next to you, I always pray for my husband. And I pray that God would open his heart and his eyes and that he would be taught. And I said, well, that's great. And I said, so why are you convicted? And she says, honestly, because it's the only time in my whole week, life, months, years that I ever pray for him. And she said, I've got bitterness and I've got some frustration that's developed. But when we sit here, God's beginning to, he's he's begun to chip away at that. And we are working on things because I'm committed to this thing on Sunday, not just being about me. And so I've always made that a part of what we do because it really is important for us as a church to recognize it can't just be about us coming here and soaking some things in, jotting a few notes and saying that was entertaining or it wasn't or Trev's good or he's bad or whatever worship was this. It's, it's about us being used together to mat- grow spiritually and mature together as we try and become a community that's committed to discipleship and taking the gospel outside these doors. So side note. Um, so it's, it's an important part of us. So I, I, I invite you to really take advantage of it. Spend that time praying for people that maybe you know and love that are right next to you or maybe someone that's come for the, for the very first time. Okay, all that by, by just kind of side note, soapbox, I'm off it. So Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 16. Paul has made his way from Berea and he is in Athens. All right, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them, right, he's waiting for Timothy and he's waiting for Silas and whatever other companions were coming along with them. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he, is, he seems to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for I walked around and even looked and looked carefully at your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. Next week we're going to pick up Paul's big long speech to the Areopagus. But, but today I want to set it up for you because there's some important things that I want you to see here. So Paul is in Athens. And Athens was really a cultural sort of capital of knowledge and science and politics in the region. It had some of the most beautiful architecture ever known to modern man. In fact, if you go home today and you get online and you start Googling architecture of Athens that exists in the ruins today, if any of you have ever been to Greece or been to Athens, you may know. But still to this day, the ruins from some of the most amazing kind of things built by human hands are still on display in Athens. And it was a, a culture of knowledge, of science. And in fact, it was the city some well, probably about 500 years earlier in the 400 B.C. range where, where Plato and Aristotle were from. They were men of Athens. It was a, a learned city. It was a, sort of a hotbed of education and philosophical thought and all things creative and arts and science. And it was packed with people and it was packed with tourists to come and see what was being developed by the hands of the Greeks. I mean, it was just this magnificent city. And Paul is walking around this magnificent city, and, and it tells us that his, he was greatly distressed. 
because of all the idols that he saw in the city. Now, Athens, we know, was home to 17 massive temples to deities, to gods. But it was also home to probably about another hundred altars or poles or places of worship where you could worship any god of your choosing, if you will. So it was a spiritual hotbed of new ideas. And as Paul was walking around the city, he was seeing these giant, amazing temples built to these gods created by human hands, and it greatly distressed him. And it says that he was so distressed that he went to the temple and he reasoned with the Jewish people there, and he reasoned with the God-fears. And remember, the God-fears were the people that had committed themselves to Judaism. They were Greeks that had committed themselves to Judaism, but hadn't gone as far as to actually become Jewish, like to be circumcised in the things that it would take to actually become Jewish. They believed in the God of Israel, but they weren't, they were sort of not culturally Jewish. And so he, he went and he reasoned with him. And we talked a lot about this word last week when we talked about evangelism and, and the discussion that takes place in that reasoning and, and sort of the, the debate and the arguing and the, the kind of advocation for the gospel that's in there. But he goes there and it says he goes even beyond there and he begins to go into the marketplaces. Now, this is a little bit different because a lot of Paul's ministry took place around the, the synagogues. It took place around these places of Jewish teaching. But because Athens was such a hotbed of, of knowledge and scholarly activity, people just stood everywhere engaging in this sort of process of discussion and philosophy. And so Paul goes into the marketplace and begins to visit with people there. And the marketplace wasn't just a place where we went to buy stuff. It was a place where people propagated the latest ideas because that's where people gathered. You went there to buy eggs and fish and whatever. And so because there were a lot of people, you would set up your little booth or your little stand and you would yell out your greatest and latest ideas about religion or philosophy and people would gather around you. And it was a place of discussion because people were present. And so Paul goes into the marketplace and he begins to talk with and debate with and reason with the the people of Athens and all the foreigners that were gathered there. But it was a, a stunning city. And he says that as he's there, he has two groups of people that come up to him. He has some Epicurean philosophers and some Stoic philosophers. Now, interestingly enough, there's a, a lot of schools of philosophy. Any of you that have ever taken any college courses on philosophy or anything like that, you know that there are dozens and dozens of schools of, of philosophy. These are the only two that are ever mentioned in, in Scripture, uh, specifically by name. And they're the, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And, and they're, they're kind of really important because we get a lot of, of sort of common threads in our culture that come, come out of these. And the Epicureans were, were the people group or the philosophical group that gave birth to the idea of hedonism. Now, hedonism is a philosophy that says whatever is pleasurable to me and avoids pain, then that is where truth is found. So truth is found in what is pleasing to me. So hedonism is that feeling that says if it, is, if it feels good, it is good. Now, the Epicureans were a little bit more sophisticated than the hedonistic cultures that would come a little bit later. So they would take that idea of hedonism, and they would turn it into all kinds of physical or sexual or moral decay. But the, the Epicureans took it as this. If it feels good, it is good. But if you do too much of a good thing, that can be bad too. So we want to exercise our self-seeking truth and pleasure within boundaries of reason so that we don't get fat or too drunk or too whatever, right? So we want to engage enough to please me, but not engage enough to cause me harm because hedonism at its core is 
pleasure, not pain. So if I go too far with excess, right, I bring about pain. Well, the Epicureans were sophisticated. Sometimes you'll see stores, the Epicurean pantry and things like that. It's like a, a sophisticated indulgence, right, of, of foods or wines or things. Well, the Epicureans, that's sort of their philosophical idea was that we are finding truth in what pleases me, hedonism, right, what pleases me and what avoids my pain. The Stoics ended up at the same place, but they went about it in a very different way. They believed that everything in the world operated on a kind of a, a, mechan- a, a me- well, kind of a mechanical nature. In other words, we had no control of it, right? So humanity has zero control over anything that could possibly happen. It is just going to happen. You are along for the ride, so you might as well enjoy it while it happens. So their thought process is it's not a divine movement that causes it. It's actually sort of a mechanical nature of the universe that just causes things to happen. And you can do nothing about it, but what you can control is your attitude. So whether it's good or bad, you might as well just ride it with a smile till the end. And so they lived for a self-seeking self-pleasure because the world was short and going to end, and so we might as well get our pleasure now, right? So both groups came to the same end of sort of me-driven Truth is found in what pleases me, but they went about it in very different ways. And those were, you can go back and read about those, but they're very kind of strong philosophical schools of thought. Well, both of these groups, people from these groups, begin to argue and debate with Paul. They're saying, hey, uh, what are you talking about? These are new ideas we hadn't heard yet, and they're talking. And so they grab Paul, and not in a sort of an angry way, but they grab him and they take him to this meeting of a group called the Areopagus. Now, just a quick little uh, geography and history lesson from ancient Greece. But in each Greek city, uh, they would take whatever the highest place was, and they would build a temple to whatever that kind of god of that city was, whatever the patron god of that city was. And they were called the high places. You can actually read about them in all kinds of pagan history, even in, in scripture as you read it. The highest place in a location was really where people went to worship whatever that pagan god was. Old Testament calls them high places. Well, in, in, in Greek culture, right, the, the word high places comes from, the Greek word is acropolis, which acro, like acrophobia or acrobatics, the word high, and then polis, which is a Greek word for city. And so it really just means high city. Well, the acropolis is the highest place in the city where they would go and they would build a temple to whatever the most important god was. Well, in Athens, the Acropolis, which is still there today, actually, you can see it, uh, was where the goddess of Athena, her temple was. And she's the the goddess of wisdom, So, which is fitting for the city, considering what we talked about with scholarly kind of things, pursuits, and like that. But her temple was housed in what's called the Parthenon. So if you go to Athens today, it is still a magnificent ruin on top of the Acropolis. It is the highest point in the city. And it's this magnificent stone column structure that housed the temple of the goddess Athena. Well, about 50 yards from that, there was a hill. And it was an outcrop of marble. And it was about 50 feet high and about 150 feet long. And it housed the god Ares, the god of war. And the Romans called the god of war Mars. And that place became known as Mars Hill, right? And Areopagus literally means Hill of Ares, which is the Hill of Mars or Mars Hill. And on that hill, right next to the god of Athena, a temple was erected to the god of war. And there's a group of people that didn't just go there to worship, but went there to govern all religious life in Athens. 
And that group was called the Areopagus. So it means City of Ares or Mars Hill, right? But it was also a group of people. Now, there's a lot of churches in our culture that are named Mars Hill. Maybe you didn't know where those names come from. Maybe now you do. But the idea was this is where the Areopagus met. And that group of people, they charged themselves as the custodians of all new religion and ideas. Because the Greeks prided themselves on this. Whatever you believe, we want to believe that too. But we want to tie it into our existing belief system because we want to make sure that we don't miss anything. So you can believe in whatever God you want to believe in, but you have to believe in all these gods as well because all these new ideas have got to fuse together to create a system that we can all exist in. And so the Areopagus was the custodian kind of uh, group that made sure the new ideas fit in conjunction with all the old ideas. Because they didn't want some new group coming in and telling them everything else they had was wrong. Well, of course, this is where Paul comes in, right? So these guys, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they seize Paul and they take him to the Areopagus. Up on the Marble Hill, in front of the group, and they say, this guy is introducing new ideas. And in order to introduce new ideas, you have to come through, we have to come through you all. And so they look at Paul and they basically say, hey, what are you talking about? You are introducing things that we've never heard of, and we want to know about this new teaching that you're presenting. So we are the culture, the groundwork uh, by which all new ideas and new religion is presented. And Paul's idea of Jesus Christ and the resurrection was brand new in Athens. I mean, we're talking about, remember, we're talking missionary journeys. We're taking the gospel to a place where no one has ever heard it. So you use the word, the word name Jesus, for example, and no one in the city would have ever even heard the name unless some small rumors had started to trickulate up there, or trick, uh, trickle up there, but most people had never even heard it. So when he says that Jesus is the son of the only God and that he was crucified and raised from the dead, these are new ideas. And so the Areopagus says, well, well, tell us about them because we want to understand them. And so Paul stands up in front of this group of people on this marble hill, which you can actually go to today and stand on. It's still there. You can walk out on it where they gathered. And he looks at him and he says, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around your city and I looked carefully at objects of worships, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, what you don't know, right, what you are worshiping that you don't know, I want to tell you about. And next week we're going to look in depth at his message to the Areopagus. But there's a few things I want you to see here that are really important and sort of setting up what we're getting next week. So a lot of history, a lot of culture, a lot of kind of geography to get us to, to this place. And that's this. There's a lot of cultural similarities between first century Greece and what's happening in Athens and in our culture today. So remember, the Epicureans and, and the uh, Stoics, they were engaging essentially in this hedonistic movement that rejected the seeking of truth. Basically said, we are giving up seeking absolute truth for finding truth and pleasure in what I'm doing today. So that hedonism is really actually what it is. It's a form of skepticism. It's a skeptic culture that says, we are not any longer going to pursue moral truth or absolute truth. Instead, we are just going to sort of take ideas as they come. And if it has an effect on me for pleasure, for good, then maybe I'll adapt it and find some truth in it. But if not, it's just out there. And so they lived in a sort of hedonistic, skeptic culture, or skeptic culture that just sort of said, I want to find my pleasure here now before this earth is uh, kind of done or if our time here on this earth is over. And they were all about seeking new ideas 
not so they could find truth in new ideas, but so those new ideas might give them truth in their pleasurable today living. How can I find whatever that idea is and put it so it affects something good for me, right? Hedonistic skepticism is really what it is at the end of the day. The truth is we're living in a very similar culture. Our culture today is, is very, very uh, sort of hedonistic, if you will. Well, there's probably not a culture or a time on the face of the earth that has been more hedonistic than 21st century American culture. We work ourselves to death to satisfy whatever lust, whatever craving, whatever desire there is out there to bring me and my life pleasure. We consume and we consume and we consume. And we consume the resources of the world. We consume the pleasures of the world to fill me. And we will take from you, if I need to, in order to please myself. Now, of course, these are overgeneralizations. But as a culture, this is what we do. Everything exists for me to find pleasure in this world. And if it feels good, it somewhat is good. And we have removed ourselves from the quest for truth to find truth in what pleases me today. Now, most of us are, are kind of going, well, I don't know, my mind doesn't work like that. But if you just break it down simply, you will start to make sense. Like, we work so that we can have things that will bring our lives joy. That's the reason most of us have jobs. We have jobs so that we can acquire wealth, dollars, resources, so that we can purchase things that will give and bring our lives pleasure. It's a very hedonistic culture, right? Not all cultures are like that. A lot of cultures and communities are, you know, you can use words like socialism or whatever, but they're about sharing things. And that's not right, or, or I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that this culture is about me, right? The point being is this, is that the similarities in our cultures are, are really really interesting. Because even, even when well, we take this one step further, even the, this culture in Athens was about seeking new information all the time that might enlighten me and my quest for finding joy and truth in my own life. That's what they're doing at the Areopagus. They met there every time. And you know what Luke says? Luke says, he kind of makes a, uh, a little bit of a sarcastic comment at him when he says, listen, it's in, it's in a parenthesis in your Bible, verse 21. It says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there, all they spent their time doing was nothing but talking and listening to greatest ideas. I mean, they just basically sat around and talked and listened to ideas on what they could hear that they could apply to their life to create some kind of new form of religion that would satisfy my sort of self-seeking soul. A lot of us, right, are really sort of in that movement. We want enough religious ideas to fuel our political agendas, or we want enough religious ideas to fuel my desire for a little bit of moralism, but I don't really want to have to buy into all the things that my religious ideas tell me I need to buy into because that's convicting. So we want to take the love and the mercy and the grace of God, but we want to walk away from His just wrath. Because it makes me feel a little uncomfortable. So I want to take God as all loving. And I want to apply it to my deep desire for unity and harmony. And I want to pull that in. And I also want to support my desire for a new boat. And I want to live in this thing. And so we take ideas and we pull them in. And we create religious movements that are palatable to our hearts. Right? But are empty and void. It's what was happening in Athens. They were taking religion, right, which I'll get to in just a minute, that was created by human hands, and they were forming it into a way of saying, we are spiritual, right? Yet they were dying spiritually. So there's a lot of cultural similarities, and, and so I think it's important because we've walked away from a lot of our desire to find truth. 
And we exchange that for a desire to find pleasure. Like, I just want to enjoy this life, right? And we think that God exists to give me joy in this life. And the truth is we exist to serve him and bring about God's glory. But So I want you to see cultural similarities. And I mentioned the cultural similarities because I want you to see Paul's heart. So Paul is walking around the city, and we learn that he is greatly distressed. You can translate that sentence actually a couple of ways. You can translate it to, he was greatly distressed. You can translate it to, his spirit was deeply provoked. Now, it changes a little bit of our understanding, but it's this sort of incitement, deep, sort of visceral, emotional reaction. That as he's walking around the city, his heart is deeply and emotionally grieved. Not to the point of anger, but to the point of brokenness. He's walking around this incredibly beautiful contemporary cultural city that has the most amazing architecture and these incredible buildings built by human hands. And they are dedicated to gods, deities that aren't real, that were created by humanity to fit some kind of religious scheme that we needed answers for. And his heart is greatly, greatly distressed to the point of he has to push himself to go to the temple to reason. And and that wasn't enough. He pushed himself into the streets. And, and I want you to understand this because a lot of times we look at Paul and we think that Paul was sort of this rigid, hard, like evangelist. But Paul was, was a man that loved the Lord. The things that, that broke God's heart actually broke Paul's heart. And he was deeply distressed over the sin and decay that was happening around him. And a beautiful, amazing city that was dying spiritually and it distressed his heart. And I mention this because for so many of us, we are so apathetic to the sin and decay that is happening in the world around us. We are just apathetic to it, out of sight, out of mind. We don't have to deal with the fact that we live in a world where slavery is more rampant than it's ever been in history, where genocide is still real, where human trafficking is, is happening in our own backyard, and we can turn off the TV and pretend it's not there or go ignorance as bliss. Because if it doesn't affect me, right, then it's just sort of part of what's out there. But what's out there is broken, and it is dying, and it is full of sin and decay. And it may look beautiful, but on the inside it is rotting away. And that's what Paul's heart was being broken over. That all these adorned, beautiful, created things were bankrupt. But we live in a culture, a so kind of inwardly focused Christian culture, That if it's not happening to us or within us, we just seem to ignore it or at least become apathetic to it until we have to deal with it. When I went to Africa 2009 or 10 or whatever year that was, uh, we were walking around the sort of rural countryside and we were assigned translators. And these were were usually young guys, 15 to 19, uh, that were in Bible college that were in training to become pastors and they were our translators. And they put us one-on-one and we would walk around at these different houses in Uganda and we would visit with families, and they would translate, whether a Lugandan or a Tesso, whatever language we were, we were talking, because my Tesso is eh, a little rough. So we were walking around, right? And, and I, we had a lot of time to visit with your translator, and I was asking about his story, his conversion story, and he was telling me, he told me, and I'll spare you the details, the most horrific story I've ever imagined, but that when he was nine, the LRA, the Lord's Resistance Army, which was at the time... Uh, very powerful in eastern Uganda, led by Joseph Kony. You can Google it. It's a uh, child soldier. It's this whole awful thing. Rode into his, into his little village, a place of about, he said, about 25 to 30 houses. 
And they rode in on motorcycles, and everybody ran and hid in the bushes. And he watched his mom and his two daughters get hacked to death with machetes right before his eyes. Wasn't a believer. Watched his whole village become slaughtered. And as he told me about this, and I said, I said, man, I, I, I was out of words. And I said, I'm so sorry that happened. He looked at me and said, happened? It's still happening. This was 2000, whatever it was, 2010. I said, it's still happening. And he goes, what do you think is happening over here? And I was instantly, deeply convicted because I didn't give a rat's tail what was happening around the world at the time. I was focused on me and getting my kids where they needed to go and doing my life. And it was almost as if I lived in this little apathetic culture that said, my life is challenging. Now, we all do this, but here is a guy and his family, it's still happening, that are being literally murdered in a civil war that's still raging all over the Congo and all over Uganda. And I am a proclaimer that I love Jesus and looked him in the eye and said, I didn't even know this was happening to you. We live in a culture that is so me-focused. I mean, how many of you are aware of the refugee crisis? How many of you are watching the news realizing how many millions of people are without homes around the world that are wandering from certain death to another place of basically certain death? And the world sits idly by and says, well, they're not really here. At some point in time, As followers of Christ, our hearts have to be moved beyond apathy to a place of saying what breaks the heart of God breaks mine. And it moved Paul from a place of distress into the streets. That he was so deeply moved that he not only went to the temple, but he went into the marketplace. And he just reasoned with people. Like, listen, I know that you are are religious. And this is what he's telling the Arabs. I know it. I can see it. but, But you're missing something. And he was deeply distressed. Most of us, being distressed for our culture, our city, our nation, our world, would not be words that we would use. Sure, we know that bad things happen and that struggle exists, but most of us, we just don't really know what to do. That one in five children in Oklahoma will go to bed hungry tonight, literally hungry. Uh, Tonight, 1,500 people will sleep under a bridge somewhere in the city. 1,500, 470 of them are women and children. Okay? I mean, that's how most of us react because we don't know, number one, what to do with it. And number two, we're not moved to action of the things that break God's heart. And I make mention of that just because, not to make us feel bad and not to say we should, but to, but to say, how long are we just going to gather in our churches and eat some donuts and shake some hands? At some point in time, the sin and brokenness of culture has got to send us out these doors into the streets, into the marketplaces, into our neighbors' lives. To be greatly distressed that the people around us are dying spiritually. Things may look beautiful on the inside, but they're dying spiritually. It was the most beautiful city in the world, and it was wrecked spiritually, and it broke Paul's heart. And you know what? Our culture's similar. We have beautiful things, beautiful culture, beautiful arts and, and knowledge bases and things, and there are people that are dying without Jesus, and we don't seem to care because evangelism makes me uncomfortable at some point in time that should break our heart our cultures are similar 
But the things that break Paul's heart aren't breaking ours, and they've got to. They've got to stir us. We talk about foster care, right? You know how many kids in this city don't have families? The answer to the crisis with foster children in our country is the church. Last thing I want you to see is this. I want you to beware of the religious lie. So we've got the, the culture similar. We've seen Paul's distress, but I want you to be aware of the religious lie. Look at what Paul says, and we'll really explore his sermon or his, his, his message next week. But I want you to look at what he says. He says this. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, I looked carefully at your objects of worship, and I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. He looks at him and he says, men, listen, as you gather here, this is this ruling kind of council of moral and religious new ideas. He says, I see that you are religious was not a compliment. He was not complimenting them saying, hey, you're religious, good for you. He's basically saying, I see your religion and it's bankrupt. Because the sin of the, the Greek people was not necessarily just their moralistic hedonism. It was they had exchanged the truth of God, creator God, for a lie made by human hands. Because religion at its core, now I'm using the term religion, Religion at its core is a lie because it takes and exchanges God the creator of scripture for gods and deities and things that are made, even traditions that are made by human hands. And we begin to worship the created rather than the creator. And religion itself with its laws and its setups and all of its boundaries and all of its traditions and things become the things that we worship. Legalism. You can put that name on it if you want to. Religion becomes a legalistic movement made by men, right? Made by humans that we adore more than the God that created the stars, more than the God that breathed life into our very lungs. Religion itself is the area of broken sinfulness that broke Paul's heart. It wasn't just that the culture was dying spiritually. It was that it exchanged God's truth, God creator. For gods that were made by human hands. And this isn't just isolated to the Greeks. We do it with Christianity. We do this with Christianity. We exchange the truth of God of Scripture for a Christian God that fits our political and social agendas, taking the things, as I mentioned earlier, that we love about God, the grace and the, the beauty and, and He is all loving, and stepping away from His justness because I want to deal with this. And that created religion is a lie. Because God in his entirety, the God of scripture, is the God of truth. And when we exchange our created versions of that for the real thing, Paul will tell us in the book of Romans, which we'll get into later on, I'm sure, together. And when we do that, we exchange the truth of God for a lie. And that lie is sin, and that lie leads to death. Every single one of us, will stand accountable for our actions before the Lord. For every decision and everything, we will stand before God and we will be held to His standard of holiness. Every single one of us. And our, our created religions, our created versions of Christianity, our movements will not stand. They will not hold us up and they will not provide shelter. The only hope that we have is in Redeemer, Savior, Jesus Christ. That in all of our sinfulness, in all of our created movements, in all of our 
desperate love for myself and my own pleasure, the only hope I have over sin and death is a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can stand up to God's measure of holiness, and his blood rescues humanity. That is the only answer. Paul's heart broke because humanity was lost and exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they were going to be held accountable to the holiness of God. And without Jesus, there was no hope. Paul's heart broke over the lost. We have a world, maybe some of us even in this room today, are lost. I mean, are separated from Jesus. I mean, we have been seeking a love affair with ourselves and our own desires and our own pleasure. And we have tried to create a picture of religion that fit into my little cubbyhole so that I could show up at church and feel better about my life, even though I know what I'm doing and how I'm living as a complete atrocity to what God has for me. We will stand accountable to God. The only question is, where is our hope? Is our hope in those, hempl- in those temples built on the high places? Is our hope in academics? Is our hope in knowledge and new ideas? Is our hope that just maybe we did enough good moral things so that God will say, hey man, you really tried. Good effort. It's bankrupt. It's a religious lie. Religion at its core is the exchange of God's truth, the relationship that we've been given to God through Jesus Christ, for a legalistic movement of action. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. That's it. I wrap all this up by saying this. That truth, like Paul, should drive us into the market. That's why I say evangelism is the backbone of what we're talking about. These things should grieve our heart, and they should drive us outside of these doors. Here's mine. It's why we're moving. Not so we can have just a bigger place. So that we can launch outside these doors as a community to go and take this gospel message that redeems us to a world that is beautiful on the outside, but bankrupt and broken and dying spiritually. That's what it means to be the church. So let's not exchange that for what the world wants us to believe. Our only hope in life and death is Jesus Christ. Let's pray.